fact, when Caleb was in the midst of his leukemia battle, we spent hours upon hours sitting in hospital rooms at St. Jude. And, and Caleb, of course, then as a four, five, six-year-old, needed something to occupy him. A lot of times he didn't have energy to be down on the floor playing. So uh, unfortunately, and I, I don't mean that in a negative way, but we did a lot of screen time. That was just kind of a necessity of what we did back in those days. And, and so sometimes it was Caleb playing on his Nintendo DS, his V-Smile, sometimes the arcade there at St. Jude. But I can remember one particular day where he was sitting with me and I had a laptop in my lap and, and we were on PBS Kids. I don't know if you guys know anything about PBS Kids. Those parents probably do. And and we were watching some PBS Kids cartoons, but there's also a word game that they provided so to, to get your kid to dialogue and to think. And so we were watching one of these word games, and the way the word game would work was it would pop up a picture, and then it would put a sentence, and it would leave one of the words out to cause your five- or six-year-old to come up with a word. And one of those was a picture like this. It was a skunk coming into a courtroom, and, and when you looked at the actual sentence, the first word was left blank. It was just a blank with a parentheses there, and it's like blank in the court. And Caleb looked at it, and he could see it was a skunk, and Caleb's very sharp and intelligent, and he said, odor, and in fact, he said, oda, because he had a hard time with his R's back in those days, and he said, oda, and I just kind of laughed, and he looked at me, he said, why is that funny? Because see, to Caleb, a skunk being in the courtroom wasn't funny at all. He thought that was actually kind of weird. And, and I had to explain to Caleb, I said, well, Caleb, you know, all the years in law enforcement, if a courtroom starts to become a little chaotic or unruly, the judge will take his gavel and he'll kind of slam it down on the desk and, and he will say, order in the court. And so Caleb really quickly put that together. Okay, so instead of order in the court, it's a skunk who's smelly who has brought this chaos into the room, this stench of his smell. And so the judge is, is calling out odor in the court, and then he just busted out laughing out of the blue. He thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. And, and so the thing was, it took him a moment to get it. There was this period where he did not get it. I had to explain to him why this statement was, in fact, funny. And so, church, I want to introduce you to a new character today. We've been working through the book of Acts, and we've talked about Peter and John and all of their ministry. Last week, we left off with the ministry of Philip back in Samaria, and Philip's doing some wonderful things, uh, these miracles being performed through him by the Lord, his preaching of the word. Samarians are coming to faith, and yet today we're introduced to a very contrasting character. His name is Simon, but he's known within the text as either Simon the sorcerer, based on whatever translation you're using, or it may say Simon the magician. And I'll tell you a little bit about Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician today, because Simon was one of those guys who, even though he received tons of instruction, and, and I mean gets really good instruction, very detailed instruction, he sees a lot of visible evidence of the very presence of God and the power of God, he was a guy that just didn't get it. And in fact, the way it ends in his dialogue with Peter, it appears that not only did he not get it, it appears that he didn't get it, like meaning salvation. That there was something he just did not grasp. And so this morning, I want to use this story of Simon the Magician to kind of prep you and to get you ready for the fact that in your circles, in your world, people just aren't going to get it. And I don't mean don't get you and your weird sense of humor because all of us have our own little quirks and, and, and things that make us unique. But I'm talking about the Christian faith. You do understand our culture just does not get it. They do not understand why we would say that there is a rule book that is applicable to all people. Our culture doesn't get that. 
They don't understand a a life-giving Jesus who has actually died in history for us, has been risen, and now he intercedes for us, and and he wants us to experience glory and salvation, and they just don't get it. They don't understand why same-gender relationships aren't correct. They just don't get it. And so as a church, then, we need to be prepared for the fact that some folks that God places in our life that cross our path just aren't going to get it. And what do we do with those? How does that affect our behavior? How does it affect our relationship with them? What do we do with them in our journey? How do we respond when they just don't get it? And so we're going to see all of that come to life this morning. So so go to the Lord with me in prayer. Let's get ready to study, and let's focus on this idea of us as a church responding to those that just don't get it. Father, we love you. We thank you that we can gather in this room, and I thank you that singing this morning with many of my brothers and sisters, Father, we do get it. We do get why we're here. That, Father, why we're here is not for us to receive anything. It's for us to give everything. Father, our attention, our faith voiced through prayers, our worship voiced through song and now through attentiveness. And then, Father, even our sacrifices through tithes and offerings, we are here to give you worship. Thank you that we get that. And you have taught us that principle well in your word. But Father, here's how gracious you are. When we come to give you everything, you are so gracious that you give us back everything. Father, you gave us Christ Jesus. You gave us an atonement sacrifice. You gave us salvation and then gave us the faith to believe in that gift of salvation. You've given us your instructions, your holy word. And Father, you've given us, again, understanding to get it. And so, Father, I pray for wisdom that goes even deeper than that today, that, Father, you would help us to grasp the fact that there are going to be those in our midst, maybe even in our church circle, that just really don't get it. And so, Father, I I pray today you would give us wisdom to respond to that, give us wisdom to make sure that we do get it. And unlike Simon, Father Peter would have looked at us and said, yes, you are part of this kingdom. You have a portion. You have a share. Give us that wisdom, for that wisdom is what makes us more like Jesus. That wisdom is what ensures our salvation and our understanding and our application of truth. Thank you for truth. We voice this collectively in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. If you would start reading with me there in verse 9, as we talk about Philip continuing his ministry in Samaria. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. Giving you some pictures just to remind you what's going on. If you look, Samaria is this region up at the top. It's actually a region, but there was a city called Samaria as well. And so I've given you kind of some archaeological remains, leftovers of Samaria. Samaria sat on a high spot. It sat on a hillside and looked down over a valley. So, so Samaria referred to an entire region, but there was a city of Samaria that was more concentrated. So Philip's in that city of Samaria, in that region of Samaria, about 50 miles north of Jerusalem. And so you're in what was at that time a very powerful area. But remember, remember the setting. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews. They, they were part of the northern kingdom. When Assyria came in, they that remained ended up intermarrying with the Assyrians, which was against Levitical law. They ended up intermarrying with some of the Canaanites, which was against Levitical law. And so the Jews that were down in the southernmost kingdoms looked at these northern kingdom people as outcasts. They were outsiders. You're not like us. You're not the faithful. You're not the true body of God. And, and so Again, this was the disconnect, and yet here Philip, because of all the pressure and all the persecution taking place in Jerusalem, where does he go? He goes straight to the place that no other Jewish Christian would go. 
He goes straight to Samaria, and God rewards him. He's doing miracles through him. He's preaching the word through him. And all of a sudden, now, Luke gives us this detailed information. There's this guy that's practicing sorcery. Uh, The word translated there as sorcery is the Greek word mayevo. Mayevo is where we get the word magic. Well, in Greek, mayevo means two things. It can mean magic, which in Greek means sleight of hand. So, So, a trickster, someone who is tricking people. He really doesn't have real power, but it looks like he has power. It's very entertaining. People are always drawn to something that they cannot understand or put their finger on. They know something's up with it, but they just can't nail it down. However, it's also the word, mayevo also means witchcraft. And so this is a guy that, that possibly has some ties to the occult, ties to what we would call black magic or the dark arts, but he's also a guy who has learned to take his trade and and make it a better craft. He's learned by sleight of hand to draw the crowd. So he's a guy that always has a crowd following him. He's all about entertainment. It's not about substance. It's all about entertainment. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, this man is called the great power of God. The word power there is dynamesis, where we get the English word dynamite. It means ability capability. It's supernatural. It's over the top. Now, keep in mind, they're calling him this, and notice how Luke listed that. He claims himself to be something, and so people have given a title to him based on what he claims of himself. You do know there's been lots of false messiahs throughout the years that have claimed much about themselves. And so many times people will assign a title or recognition to somebody that's really not earned. It's not been a true value that's been established, but it's because they say something about themselves. So so you've got an entertainment value. He speaks highly of himself, and so now the people are starting to believe his own lies. They're starting to follow him because of things that he is saying about himself. Verse 11. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. All right, so notice this. They were not attentive to him because of the quality of what he was saying. They were not attentive to him because of the content of what he was saying. They were attentive to him, why? Because it's entertaining. But but I'm going to show you just a minute in the very next sentence that entertainment will only hold people for so long. You do know even in the American culture, some of our churches have fallen for this. We have fallen for the entertainment aspect of worship. We want people to be entertained, for them to have a lot of fun. Here's the only problem. Entertainment will only hold you for so long. Because when real truth shows up, you've got to make a choice between entertainment and real truth. And so notice this. Notice this happens right here in Samaria. Verse 12, but... And so that's how he starts verse 12. All right, so people have been amazed by him. They've been entertained by him. They've been been fooled by all the things he has said about himself. But what happens when real truth shows up? But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Christ Jesus, both men and women were baptized. All right, so you've got the entertainment factor, but all of a sudden, real reality shows up. Real truth shows up. And the word there that's used for belief, please hear me, entertainment is an emotional thing. Belief is not. Now, you may have an emotional experience with belief, but that is not the word for belief in Scripture. The word for belief in Scripture is pistevo. It literally means, the literal meaning of belief is think to be true, not feel to be true, not listen to somebody else's words or their entertainment value to be true, but think to be true. 
So for you to become a follower of Jesus, because notice what just happened. They believed Philip, and what did they believe specifically that Philip said? The good news of the gospel. These are people who are converting to Christianity. They are following through as Christ followers. They're becoming believers. How? Because they think to be true. Don't miss this, though. You cannot think to be true according to Ephesians 2 unless what happens first? God gifts you with the gift of faith. Unless God gifts you with the gift of faith, you can't even think to be true Jesus is real. You, you can hear about Jesus all your life, but unless the Lord acts upon you first. So here's the order of salvation. God, through his Holy Spirit, must act upon you first. God pursues you. Pe- people talk about all the time. We use terms like seeker. People are seeking God. No, they're not. They are only seeking God if God has sought them. God must act upon you first or you cannot be saved. You will never initiate that process. God initiates the process. He gives the gift of faith. And as he gives the gift of faith, all of a sudden you are exposed to truth for the very first time. Philip is preaching truth. They've never heard about Jesus. No no Jewish Christian's ever gone to Samaria. And so now they're starting to hear truth for the very first time. That truth is wooing them in a way that entertainment didn't woo them because they sent something real about truth. And so God's given them that gift, and so they believe. And so now, notice what they believe, the gospel message. Notice something that's also very, very unique here. This is one of the first examples we've seen of this in the New Testament. But notice what happened with with our character, Simon. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed, period. Notice Luke, who is a doctor, who is all about detail, mentions that all these Samaritans believed in what? The gospel. When it says that Simon believed, what does he say he believed in? It doesn't say. Because it's definitely not the gospel. You're going to see in just a minute, he was drawn to the power. He was drawn to the crowds. He was drawn to the miracles. So so please hear me. There are hundreds upon thousands of people that attend church every Sunday because they're drawn to something other than truth. They're drawn to the entertainment. They're drawn to the music. All of those are not bad things, but they're not the real thing. They're not the good thing. And so you've got a guy who appears to be the real deal. Because notice, notice this. And after he was baptized, so he, was, he even followed through. So I believe, dunk me in some water, so he gets baptized. But notice where his following was. He followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. Doesn't say anything about him believing in the gospel. He is not drawn to the gospel. What is he drawn to? He is drawn to the guy that's appeasing everybody, the guy that is actually doing the miracles. What they don't understand is Philip's doing it with the right heart. He's doing it to bring glory to the Lord. But you've got Simon following after Peter. In fact, the word followed after, that's a word in Greek that literally means legalized stalking. This is not, this is not just he went where Philip went. This is he is glued to his hip. If Philip turned right, he turned right. Hey, Roger, go to the one more slide, because this is, this is our guy on the left. This is Simon. So you've got Philip doing his, his miracles and his teaching and laying on of hands, and everywhere he goes, Simon is right there. And you're going to see in just a minute, it's not the Word of God that he is enthused with. It is not sacrifice or surrender to Jesus that is drawing him. It is because he is wanting that same power. He's wanting the same crowds. He's wanting the same recognition. Do you remember why the Pharisees got jealous initially? Because of the crowds that were following Jesus, here we have the same situation. you got a guy who is amazing people for years with his sleight of hand, maybe his black magic. And now all of a sudden the crowds have left him. And they're all being baptized and they're following real truth. And, and so now he's after, how do I get the crowds back? All right, so here, here's what takes place, verse 14. 
When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Notice what that said. It didn't say Samaritans received the gospel. It said what? Samaria, the whole area. When I tell you that everybody is starting to follow Jesus, we're talking about a whole area. Uh, We get also another word that gives us an indication of how salvation works. When it says received, that's the word dekome in Greek. It means to accept as to surrender to. So, so like you're accepting terms of surrender, please hear me. You are not saved unless you have surrendered your life to Jesus. You don't agree to go to heaven. You agree to surrender. Okay, Lord, not my way anymore, your way. I give in. And, and so that's the word that's literally in the Greek. And, and so what happens is so Samaritans, remember, hated by the Jews. What are all the early Christians? They're Jews. They're back down here, and they're going, man, we know what it is to follow Jesus because we follow Jesus. All of a sudden, word starts to trickle down. I'm wondering how long. Y'all do know that there's no telephones, no email, no Facebook, no Twitter. I'm wondering how long it took for the word to get back down to Jerusalem, but somehow it did. Over over a period of time, the word gets down there, and they go, hey, we need to go see if this is real. We know Philip's a solid dude. I mean, Philip's one of our guys. He was in our church, and he's been persecuted, and he's scattered. We need to go find out if this is real. Are these people really choosing to follow the Lord Jesus? And so they send these guys to verify. And so here's the deal. Please hear me. If you're a Christ follower, there should be other mature Christ followers who could vouch for you. Because see, this is what they're doing. They're about to send two apostles to go check out and make sure this is the real deal. You should not be offended if somebody starts to ask you questions about your faith. You should not be offended if somebody comes to you and says, hey, you talk about Jesus all the time, but man, you talk like everybody else in this office. I I don't hear you ever mention church. I I never see you read the scriptures or never hear you mention prayer. I see how you talk to your wife. Is there any evidence you're different than me even though you say you love Jesus and I don't? It should be visible. And so that's what they're sending. They're sending Peter and John to clarify that these people are truly Christ followers. Verse 15, after they went down there, they prayed for them so that Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. Okay, I've got to explain this one real quick because this sounds a little confusing. All right, come down on. Epipipto in Greek, it means to press against as to become one. You do understand that's what happens to you at the point of salvation. At the point of your belief, the Bible says you are sealed, past tense, by the Holy Spirit. So it happens at this moment of belief. It is past tense, meaning it carries over for the rest of your life. And so the Holy Spirit presses himself upon you so that the two of you become one. It's exactly what Jesus prayed to the Father. Father, that they would be one with you as I am one with you. And so you have become one with the Father. But notice, notice, Luke is a doctor. He, he, he is taking this account. He wants us to understand every step of it. He says, but here's something very unique. They have believed, they have been baptized, but the Holy Spirit hadn't come down on them yet. So, so he's trying to let us know this is not the norm. In fact, here's how we know it's not normal, that this is not the standard way of salvation. Look what he writes in the very next verse, verse 16. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When you use only in the Greek construction, what that indicates is this, is that that's not the norm. They had only been baptized, meaning this. Normally, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit first, then you receive water baptism. So, so somebody would ask, hey, well, why, why is it happening this way? Are, are the Samaritans really, are they kind of second-class Christians? Why, why are they getting all this out of order? No, I, I think it's very intentional here. If you'll remember what happened at Pentecost, there was belief, many of those followers were baptized, and then the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. I believe firmly this is the Lord God creating persecution in Jerusalem, forcing Philip to go north. Philip goes up there, starts to preach. 
Faith has been given to these Samaritans. They wholesale come to Christ Jesus. And now what he wants is he wants the original apostles to go sign off on this. I'm going to send you guys up there because you're going to see that the same Holy Spirit that fills you as Jewish Christians is the same Holy Spirit that fills these Gentile Christians. And so I'm absolutely convinced this is simply the Lord in this moment of time creating a Samaritan Pentecost, so to speak. So you've had a Jewish one. Now you're about to have a Gentile Pentecost. Look at verse 17. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, why did they lay their hands on them? Because they're listening to their testimonies and Peter and John go, dude, this is the real deal. Philip, what did you tell them? Philip recounts what he told them. What did you people do in response to what Philip told you? Oh, we believe. We, we had the power to believe and think this to be true. And they're like, this is the real deal. Man, this is salvation. This, this is true life change. This is something we need to agree with. And so they did. At that point, the Spirit comes. Look at verse 18. So now, remember, Simon. All right, so the Holy Spirit comes, and it appears to have come to everybody observing except my one guy. Notice. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money. It's not just money, it's the word krima. Krima is the word for bribe. Krima is the word for bribe. So, so it's not just money. He didn't just offer them money. He's trying to bribe them. What is he bribing them for? He's not concerned about salvation. He's not trying to bribe them for the power of salvation. He's trying to bribe them so the people will follow him. He wants the power. So if I touch somebody, I've got the power. He doesn't want salvation. He doesn't want faith. He doesn't want belief. He wants the entertainment industry to continue to grow. So what does he want? He wants the attention. He wants the recognition. I will bribe you if you will give that to me. Well, we're about to learn his salvation status. And in fact, Peter, Peter with great discernment, clarifies this. Verse 19, give me this power also so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But, verse 20, But Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You do, please hear me. Guys, please hear me. You can't miss this. This is a salvation moment maybe for somebody in this very room. You can't attend church and earn salvation. You can't do enough good acts and earn salvation. You can't throw enough money in the plate and earn salvation. Your mama can't pray for you enough to get there. My mama's prayed enough for me, trust me. And that's still not good enough to get me there. He says, you can't buy this. You can't earn this. And so he tells him, may this be destroyed with you. Verse 21 clarifies his salvation status. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Listen, some of us who are saved, sometimes our heart is not right before God because of us falling back into sin. You got to understand what Peter said before that. He did say your heart's not right, but what did he say first? He said, you have no part or share. The word part is meris. In Greek, meris literally means portion. What does the Bible say about Christ? He is our portion. What did Peter just tell him? Through the discernment of the Holy Spirit, you've got no portion, meaning you've got no Jesus in you. And because you have no Jesus in you, then your heart, remember cardia, it's not really heart, it's heart. It's the inner self, it's the inner man. He said, because you have no Jesus in you, you are not right with God. And so Peter is about to give him the only solution to someone who does not know Christ as their Savior. Therefore, verse 22, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. Church, listen, this is massive. Here is a guy who walked with Jesus his entire earthly ministry. 
And here's what he says to a guy who doesn't know Jesus personally. He says, you need to turn away from your sin. You need to ask the Lord forgive you. If possible, the Lord might. Here's what he just said. Just because you ask him to forgive you doesn't mean he will. And somebody goes, what? You mean if somebody asked Jesus to forgive them? He might not. Let me give you a couple stories. Y'all remember the story of Pharaoh? The Bible said Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then God did what after that? He hardened Pharaoh's heart. There is no forgiveness at that point. God says, nope, it's done. What does Romans 1 say? He handed them over to the lust of their flesh, meaning once he hands them over and God has taken his hand off you, there's no coming back home. See, Peter doesn't know here. Here's what Peter knows. Philip has preached and the entire community came to know Jesus in this this substitutionary atonement sacrificial faith. They have believed. They have accepted. You, however, my friend, have not accepted. I'm telling you to repent and ask God to forgive you and maybe it's not too late. Meaning this, you don't get saved when you choose. You get saved when God chooses. Salvation is not on your terms. Acceptance of Jesus is on his terms. And we get this confused all the time. We, we think people can just, hey, man, people can get saved at any No, they cannot get saved at any point. We don't control salvation. You don't control salvation. God does. And so here's what he says. You pray and ask the Lord to forgive you, and it might be possible. Might be possible if it's possible. Verse 23, for I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Um, the word bitterness is actually the outcome. It's not actually the word. It's pikria in Greek, and it means jealousy. Jealousy. He said, you are filled with jealousy. All you want is what's not yours. You're wanting recognition that's not yours. You're wanting a position that's not yours. You're wanting fame that's not yours. You want a following that's not yours. You're wanting power that's not yours. And so what has that led to? It's led you to be bitter. So bitter that you would try to bribe God. And y'all do understand there are Christians that exist in our churches just like that. They don't like their lot in life. They don't like their position in life. They don't like their authority in life. They don't like their power in life. They don't like their wealth in life. They're discontent across the board. And it's all due to a bitter root that's there. And that bitter root originated because of jealousy. Some type of jealousy came up. I've seen it in every church I've pastored. And so here we have this issue. In verse 24, notice again, this shows you that he just didn't get it. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Church, please hear me. Peter could pray all he wanted to for Simon's salvation, but unless Simon got right with Jesus, it's not happening. So so we can provide all the information in the world. You've got the two guys, Peter and John, who are mentioned more so with Jesus than anybody else. You've got those two guys that are there, and he still doesn't get it. Let me me give you a more modern example, the El Camino de la Muerte. Uh, Some of you may have heard of this. Uh, this is in Ugas, Bolivia. And, and when you go to Bolivia, you, you've got this pass that runs from La Paz. It's at 12,000 feet in the mountains. And it goes down to the Amazon River Basin at Coriico. Uh, for years, for years, they've been giving information about this pass. Like, stay off of it. That's the information they give you. It's called the Road of Death. El Camino de la Muerte is what that means, the Road of Death, the Death Road. And, and so they've been telling people this for years. In fact, let me give you some numbers. On average, 26 vehicles per year fall off this thing. 26, I'm not saying two, or six, 26. On average, 100 people per year perish here. And did you know it's become a tourist attraction? More people go there now than they've ever gone before. No kidding, this this is the truth. 
1983, the most tragic thing happened. There was a bus, kind of like these that you see. A bus had over 100 people in it. Uh, It went off the edge. All 100 plus died in that one bus accident. Uh, This happens every year. Like I said, on average, 100 people per year. 26 vehicles per year. Just Google it. You can pull it up. There's information everywhere. And like I said, it's never been more traveled than now. People flock to it. The unknown, the risk of death, the mystique. You you should see it. I I didn't, well, I I did put one picture. When the vehicles meet, this is when it gets really entertaining. When they, it's just big enough for like a goat to walk on it. And people just flock to it. Now, now, now y'all get this. Y'all know the old statement, right? You know, I buy you books and I send you to school and what do you do? You eat the books. Yeah, here, this is it. I mean, we, we, we educate you, we give you truth, and more of you come than ever before. Simon, the sorcerer, he hears truth from Philip that is so persuasive an entire city comes to know Jesus. Peter and John show up. Peter even challenges him, even challenges whether or not the dude is saved. He says, I don't even think God's forgiven you. And what does he do? Instead of him praying and asking the Lord for forgiveness, what does he say? I actually still want this on my terms, so Peter, won't you do this because I'm busy making money? So again, no acceptance of Jesus on Christ's terms. So church, that is our, our challenge today. I want you to get this. You cannot have a relationship with Jesus on your terms. It is not, it is not possible I've had people come to me and say, oh, I really believe the Lord's leading me to do this. And I take out Scripture and I start going through Scripture and I point out that in this plan that they have, that there is some sin issue involved in the plan. And I try to express to them, you do understand, God is never the author of sin. And so if you're doing something that is sinful, it is not God who's led you to do that. And I've had people look me dead in my eye and tell me I'm wrong, even though I can show them in Scripture. Man, what you're doing is divisive within the body of Christ. This is a sin. What you're doing is going, it's, it's, it's virtually adultery. I've had a guy tell me, he, he was caught in an affair, and he told me God led him to this woman. That was God's will, that they be together because they're supposed to be happy. They're both married to other people. And he was a deacon in our church and did the children's sermon every Sunday. And I'm like, no, get out. It wasn't that simple, but... Golly, I mean, I'm just like, you buy books, send them to school, eat the books. You cannot accept Jesus on your terms. Peter clarifies it. Dude, cry out to God for him to forgive you, and he might do it. It might be possible if your heart's really in it. What does it look like if I've accepted Jesus on his terms? Number one, I'm not going to fall for false gospels. Y'all, please hear me. There's a lot of false gospels out there. There's a lot of churches that are far more interested in you being entertained and you being excited than they are teaching the Word of God. If you decide you don't want to be a part of this church, listen, that's fine. It's not personal to me, but make sure that, number one, God is releasing you. Number two, you go to a church where they teach Scripture above everything else because it's not about having fun. It's about being with Christ Jesus in a submissive relationship to the greatest authority that's ever existed, and that's God. And so again, don't fall for a false gospel that when you become a Christian, everything becomes easy. I hear people say that all the time. Man, you know, you decide to follow Jesus, everything else is just going to be great. No, 
everything just got really hard because now I know to fight my flesh. Prior to that, I didn't know to fight my flesh. Now I know it's wrong to speak critically or harshly. Now I know it's wrong not to guard my lustful or discontent mindset or my greedy mindset. And so there's a lot of false teaching. Just be careful. Just be very careful the stuff you start to buy into. Y'all, one of the saddest things, the honest truth, and I would never name a name, but one of the saddest things since I've been here is sitting across from a person in my office who is absolutely convinced Jesus Christ is the Antichrist. I'm talking about debt they are convinced because it's on Google. Because it's on Google. And this is a person who's been in church their whole life. And over the last six to seven years, they have fallen into this false gospel that Jesus was the greatest deceiver of all times. Like, that is Satan's Antichrist. All these people following Jesus are following the Antichrist, not the Christ. And to have a person, that, that this is the first time I'd ever dealt with it, to have a person sit and, I mean, stare me dead in my eyes, and they are convinced I'm wrong, and they're, they're wanting me to get saved. Some unique stuff that we're seeing right now. Number two, be honest about your treasure. Here's what Jesus says. Where your heart is, there your treasure is also. Well, here, here's the thing. Where your treasure is, there your heart is too. I mean, th- those, are, those are, you can just interchange them. So where your treasure is, your heart is. The Bible says it is our heart, which is really not our heart. It's our, our, our soul, our mind. It's what makes us us. That is what God wants to be focused on him. And if you put any other thing in that spot other than God, you have just violated the first of all the commandments. In case you all don't know, the, the first one ever listed was what? You will not have any other God before me. That includes you, your selfish pursuits, power you think that you can use for your own good. You will not have that and be in right standing with me. So so I'm challenging you as a called Christ follower who's come to church on a Sunday morning, be sure you know what your treasure actually is. Is it really pleasing God above everything else? Is it really God getting praise or is it you? For most of us, we're going to battle the you part of this. Number three, clarify through mature believers the reality of your faith. Remember, they sent Peter and John for one reason. Hey, guys, I want you to go to Samaria, see if this junk is for real. Because I guarantee you there were questions and they were skeptical. Dude, the Samaritans, there's no way. They didn't stay faithful. Dude, they intermarried with the Assyrians, the Canaanites. They're not pure. Go ver- there. Oh, okay, just go check it out. We know Philip. Philip's a good dude. We know he preaches truth. Go find out if this stuff is real. You should not be threatened. You should not be threatened when a mature brother or sister pulls you aside and says, man, let me tell you what I see in your life. And what I see doesn't line up with this. And because it doesn't line up with this, one or two things is happening. You have fallen into a sin pattern that has placed you out of fellowship with God or you were never saved to begin with. I need to know. And y'all, I'm just telling you, that should not threaten you because Paul said you should work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's what he says. You better be sure. You better be sure. Number four, follow through with believer's baptism. Guys, I have been amazed. Every church I've ever pastored, there'll be somebody comes to me four, five, six years after I've been there. They've been a, a Christ follower for 25, 30 years. And I've had people come to me and say, hey, I was never baptized. What? Really? You were ne- never? Ever? No. Not dunked, sprinkled, splashed, squirted, nothing. 
Really? Why are you coming to me now? Because I know I should. Notice, even though they had not yet received the Holy Spirit, what did they do? They did what was commanded because they wanted to be outwardly correct. They wanted to be outwardly correct. Does water baptism save you? Shake your head this way. Never be confused. Nope. It is our outward profession of faith. It is our testimony to the body of Christ that I am now one of them. More so than anything else, it is an act of obedience in response to the gift of salvation. If you're here today and you have not followed through with believer's baptism, even though you know you are a Christ follower, I could care less how long you've been a Christ follower. I don't care how old or how young you are. You need to let me know. We need to get some water in the tank and get it warmed up. And you need to be obedient because that's one of the things that identifies us. Number five, repent from any wrongdoing. Notice what Peter told him. Repent. What does that mean? It means turn from. Metanoeo. It means to change one's behavior by changing one's mind. The only way you will ever truly repent from sin is when you start to not like your sin anymore. And so I had to change my prayer life. I had to really, you know, Lord, help me not to do this anymore. That's the wrong prayer. Lord, help me to hate doing that because then you won't want to do it anymore. I needed the Lord to change what I thought about something, not just help me on the outside do it. That's just compliance. What I wanted was change. So, Lord, I don't want you to simply help me to comply, to stop doing something. I want want you to change my mind. I want you to make me hate that so I don't want to do it anymore. Guys, there's certain things I hate, and I don't eat them. Brussels sprouts. They're of the devil. I'm I'm just kidding. I don't like them. That's the honest truth. I don't eat them. I don't eat them. I don't care if you saute them in four sticks of butter. I still ain't eating it. And I love butter. I'll drink it. I'll just put the Brussels sprouts on the side and drink the juice. But here, here's, again, here's the thing. Turning away from, turning away from only happens when I start to despise what that thing is. And you can't do that on your own. Please hear me. You cannot, you cannot hate sin on your own. It takes God's spirit becoming more of you and changing more of you. So instead of continuing to ask God the same old prayer, Lord, forgive me, I've done it again, help me not do it again. Ask him to forgive you, but ask him to change you. Help me to hate this the way I know that you hate it. Help me to see it in my mind as disgusting as you see it. Because if you ever attain that, you will stop that. Because that's what we do. And then finally, let's finish up. Guard against jealousy of any type. You will never have to battle bitterness if you control your jealousy on the front end. The, The outcome of jealousy, that's how they translated this in the Christian standard that I read to you this morning. The outcome of jealousy is always bitterness. Always. Because you feel like you've been cheated. You feel like something should have been rightfully yours. You should... You should have been in that spot or you should have had that power, that authority, that recognition. The list goes on and on and on. If you could control the jealousy on the front end. And so when you sense it, it's it's best that you attack it then. Don't start to express it in critical speech about others because then you start convincing yourself you're rightfully entitled to this thing that you're griping about. So you need to address it on the front end. So, so no jealousy of any type should be allowed to creep in. And so here, here's where we're going to go. Here, here's what I want you to process this morning. Where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Because, see, that addresses two groups of people, really. 
It, aggress- it addresses those that truly are Christ followers. I-, I believe that you have confessed that you need salvation. God's gifted you with faith. You've accepted that gift. And yet, even in that status, we can start to chase after stuff of the world because our treasure gets a little off. However, I think it also addresses a group of people that may have never submitted to the lordship of Jesus over them. And if you're here this morning and you would be honest with yourself and you would look me dead in the eye and say, Justin, I I don't know. I don't know Jesus like you're saying the Samaritans do. I don't know that I've ever received the Holy Spirit. But I want to know. And I want to know one way or the other. I want to know. You know what? Here's here's what I'm going to ask you to do. When I finish praying, there's going to be some folks standing right over here by this door. If you would walk over there to them, they're going to be willing to greet you and, and take you to a more private spot, and they're going to walk you through what it really means to make God your treasure. But for those of you who know you've done that step, but yet you know for a fact he has not, God hasn't remained in your number one priority slot, I'm going to challenge you during our response time to confess that to him. Lord, I've allowed work to creep in. I've even allowed my family to creep in. I've allowed my hobbies to creep in. I've allowed this illicit relationship to creep in. I've allowed this mishandling of money and impulsive behaviors to creep in. All these other things have really started to compete with you, and I want them gone today. I want to recommit my loyalty, my faithfulness to you because you are where joy is found. And then also... If there's any sin, ongoing sin in your life, I'm going to challenge you to change your prayer life this morning. Ask the Lord to forgive you, but ask the Lord to change you. Lord, help me to hate this. I don't mean just dislike it. I want to hate it. I want to hate this sin like you hate my sin. You hated it so much that you put the punishment on your own son. That's how much you hate my sin. I want you to help me hate my sin this morning. And if you're here and you haven't followed through a believer's baptism, I want you to be bold enough to get with me today. Get with me today.